0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. And I got a couple of updates real quick before we launch into the meat of this episode. Uh, first of all, Monday, me and the, or, I'm sorry, Sunday, me and the childrens went to the Big Lick Comic Con, and it was every bit as good as I was hoping it was going to be. Once again, now it was a little bit smaller than the one they held in July. I don't know if that's just the way things worked out this time, or if maybe. The one in the dead of winter just isn't as well attended as the one in July. But we were there late afternoon on Sunday, which was very close to the end of the event, and it was still absolutely packed. Like I say, it's a very good event. There's pictures on the Facebook page if you'd like to go see. I'm not a big picture taker. There's only three. But I did take a couple of pictures. uh, That is Lou Ferrigno in one of the photos. I didn't walk up to the booth and speak to him because the you know the celebrities they go to those things they're there to make money they're you know hoping you'll pay them 10 or 20 dollars for a photo or an autograph and i'm not going to pay money to take a picture with somebody so i feel kind of bad walking up and taking up some of their time so i just stood a little ways back and took a photo uh, the wrestler matt hardy was doing A Q&A while i was there and that was just kind of out in the open so i stood and listened to a little bit of that but a lot of good celebrity appearances uh, My daughter is a big fan of an anime. I can't remember which one it is, but one of the voice actors for that show was there. She was very excited about that. And there was a voice actor that had done a voice in uh, JoJo's Adventures. I forget the exact name of it, but my son is a big fan of that anime. So he was excited about that. Uh, We all had a blast. Like I say, they do those two times a year. It seems like so. If you have the opportunity, I realize a lot of my listeners are not in this vicinity, and it's—I wouldn't recommend you book a flight to come here to see it. But you know, hey, if you want to, knock yourself out. But if you can get here, it's—it's it's a really good event. It's a lot of fun, and I highly recommend it. And the other thing—it's not really so much as an update. It's just something that kind of interesting that happened. Uh, my wife had some business meetings in Orlando, Florida last week. And we drove down and we were going to fly. I had assumed that a flight to Orlando would be pretty common and pretty easy to get. But for whatever reason, there was not a flight available out of Roanoke when we needed to go. So in order to fly, we were going to have to drive to Charlotte and then fly. Now, they tell you you have to be there like an hour and a half, two hours before your flight leaves to give yourself time to go to the ticketing counter, get through security, check your bags if you need to. So we were going to have to leave a couple hours earlier than we would normally need to. And plus, if you're driving any kind of a distance, especially on the interstate, you have to give yourself some padding. You have to leave a little bit early in case you hit traffic or you have car trouble or if you ate Taco Bell the night before and you got to stop at every bathroom along the way. And it's a three-hour drive to Charlotte from where we are. So we were going to have to leave six hours before our flight. And then you add in the flight time down to Orlando and getting out of the airport and getting an Uber over to the hotel. And at that point, I was just like, why are we not driving? It's only 10 hours down to Orlando from here. Now, a lot of people probably a little daunted by a 10 hour car drive, but I have driven back and forth to Pennsylvania so much in the last decade of my life that a 10 hour drive just really doesn't seem like that big of a deal. So we drove down. Now, I didn't get to do any touristy stuff. My wife was in meetings the entire time we were there. Uh, We got to Orlando uh, Wednesday evening. She was in meetings all day long from like seven in the morning until about 10 o'clock at night. They all went out for a team building dinner or some crap like that. So, I mean, she was gone all day. I left the hotel two times the time we were there, once to get coffee and once to get a second cup of coffee and dinner. But I checked out the hotel room at noon, and she had wrapped up her last meeting, and we just got on the road and come back to Virginia. And on the drive back, I saw feral hogs. Now, for a lot of people, that's probably not that big of a deal. I had not been in that part of the South since the last time I was in Georgia and Florida. It was 1986 or 87. I mean, it's been 40 years since I've been in Florida. I've got in-laws in Houston area. And they have told me that Southern Texas is just absolutely eat up with feral hogs. Now, it's not the indigenous wild hogs. It's not the razorbacks. These are farm pigs that over the years have gotten away from their farm and they're able to survive in the wild. But we were driving back and I don't remember if we were still in Florida or if we had just crossed into Georgia. But we passed, there was a group of four feral hogs browsing on the side of the interstate. And then about 10 miles up the road, I saw two more. And that's the first time I've ever seen feral hogs just out wandering around. And I absolutely would love to be able to hunt feral hogs. I want to know what they taste like. Uh, If you ever have the opportunity to eat a farm-raised pig, not something you buy at the store, but if you know somebody that's got a farm and they raise hogs, If you can get your hands on some of that meat, farm fresh pork is out of this world good. It does not, it's like you're eating a different animal. And I am dying to know what wild hog tastes like. Now, if they're just out there browsing and and eating grass and acorns and stuff like a deer, it's probably going to be more gamey and they may not even be any good to eat. I don't know, but I would love to find out. I, I would love to be able to go hunt and kill one and see what wild hog tastes like. And I enjoy hunting, but I have never been a trophy hunter. I don't care about killing a buck with a big rack. I want meat that I can have for dinner. I only hunt animals that I'm interested in eating. I have no desire to kill a fox or a bear. Any of that stuff, I'm not going to eat. You know, I hunt deer, I hunt turkey, rabbits, squirrels, stuff like that. Things that I'm going to eat is what I go after. And pork is—I mean, let's say a pig is the most delicious thing on this planet. So hog hunting is definitely a bucket list item for me and one of these days I'm going to manage to bring one of them things down and see what they taste like. But enough about me, that's not what this episode is about. Um, Today's episode is about somebody that everybody's familiar with but I I wonder how many people know that he actually existed. Now we're all familiar with uh, corporate spokespeople and you know, a lot of people we see, I, a lot of these people I assume didn't actually exist. I think they're, they're marketing creations. You know, people like the uh, the Quaker Oats guy. Uh, there was no Quaker Oats guy. Uh, that company was not actually rela- uh, connected with any Quakers or the Quaker religion at all. Uh, the Quaker Oats guy was created because at that time, the Quakers, apparently they had a very strong presence in trading and merchants and they had a reputation for being very trustworthy very honest in their dealings uh, you, they didn't sell a lot of uh cheap crap you know if you got something from a quaker you could expect to get a good quality product at a very fair price so they chose the quaker oats guy to make it seem like their steel cut oats were high quality and at a fair value and they just made that guy up out of whole cloth and it's kind of like betty crocker Betty Crocker didn't exist. There was no Betty Crocker. She was kind of dreamed up by the marketing team at that company, sort of the all-American, you know, housewife at home baking meals and cakes for her family. And it's just a creation. It's a fabrication completely. But then there are a lot of people like a uh, like Aunt Jemima. She actually existed. Now Aunt Jemima is a character that was created, uh, but there was an actual person a lady that developed a pancake mix um you know she actually she wasn't just somebody that was brought in to play the role she actually developed that pancake mix Uh, but she was a real person she she played the part in the print ads and i don't know if she was still alive when they started doing tv ads but uh god i'm sorry i can't remember her name i'm wanting to say her name was nancy green but don't quote me on that because i'm probably remembering that incorrectly or like uh the Uncle Ben's Rice. Uh, Uncle Ben was an actual person. He was a rice farmer, a very notable rice farmer at the time. And so, while he did not have anything to do with the founding of the Uncle Ben's Rice Company, he was brought in to make it seem as their their product had had some connection with his rice. And he was a very trusted figure in that particular realm of agriculture. And he was a paid spokesman for the company. But he was actually he was an actual person. And again, he didn't found the company, but he was a partner with the company for years. It's kind of ironic that Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima sort of, you know, had a hand in establishing these companies, but they just they're getting erased from history because people that don't know the story behind these people have decided it's racist to have them on the box. It's kind of crazy. But the gentleman I want to Talk to you about today is a very famous spokesperson and he actually founded the company that bears his name. Now, when he was doing the television commercials, he was not actually the owner of the company at that point. He was a paid spokesman, but it was his company that he started. Most likely you have some of his products in your pantry right now. I know I do because I eat them pretty regularly even though I'm not a kid, but and if you read the title, you probably figured it out, but I think a lot of people probably didn't figure it out because it is spelled so differently than what you're used to hearing. But the man I'm talking about today, his name is Ettore Hector Boyardi, and later in life he would become Chef Boyardee. Ettore Boyardi was born in Piacenza, Italy, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, on November 22nd, 1897. And his father was Giuseppe, and his mother was named Maria. Now, you'll hear from time to time people describe somebody and they'll say, you know, he worked his entire life in the automotive industry. And it's that's always a little bit of hyperbole. You know, you expect, well, you know, they went to school, they went to college and he didn't really work his entire life in that industry. But um, Hector Boyardi very nearly did work his entire life in the restaurant industry. He was 11 years old when he got his first job in a kitchen in Italy. He worked at La Groce Bianca. And he was uh, sort of the garbage boy, uh, chopping vegetables, things of that nature. He wasn't actually cooking when he first started. But while he was there, he did work his way into a assistant chef. And he learned how to cook working at this restaurant. Now a little later in life, he also worked in London. And then he worked in Paris. And over the course of those years, he actually worked his way up to being a head chef, even though he was a very young man at that time. Now, in May of 1914, he did immigrate to New York City. His brother, Paolo, had immigrated a couple of years before him and was working at the Plaza Hotel in New York. And Hector's brother, Paolo, was able to get Hector a job working in the kitchen at the Plaza with him. And he very quickly worked his way up to being head chef of the Plaza Hotel restaurant. Now, while he was working at the Plaza restaurant. Earned a very good reputation under his guidance, uh, so much so that Woodrow Wilson actually asked Hector Boyarty to cater his wedding reception, and this is kind of ties him into Appalachia. Uh, Woodrow Wilson held his wedding reception at the Greenbrier Hotel in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. The Greenbrier Hotel is still there; it's still in operation. It is a huge, old school like for the super rich victorian area era millionaires when they you know they'd come out of the city and they'd spend like a month at a place just to get out of the heat of the city in the summer and i mean it is immense it's over 700 rooms Uh, they have a pga tournament there i think Uh, i think it's still going on but they started doing that about uh, 10 years ago i think but it like i say it's still in operation a very impressive facility like i say it's old-school money type of place it, it's like stepping back in time when you walk in into that place but it's it's impressive I've never stayed there I've been to the grounds and walked through the hotel there's also several documentaries that you can watch on YouTube and on the internet uh, the Greenbrier is the hotel in West Virginia that the government secretly built a fallout bunker underneath the hotel uh, and there's it's been decommissioned because its location got leaked and they decommissioned it. Uh, But you can actually go and take tours of the bunker. I've never gotten to do that. That would be very interesting. But uh, there's plenty of videos on the Greenbrier online if you'd like to see a little bit about it and and learn about that bunker. There's plenty of stuff out there. But um, I had always heard that Chef Boyardee worked at the Greenbrier. The reading I did Leading up to this episode, I never saw anything that said he was actually employed at the Greenbrier. Um, I thought that he had worked there. Everything I'm reading here kind of suggests that he, well, while he did cook at the Greenbrier, it was specifically for Woodrow Wilson's wedding reception. So, so I don't know that he was ever actually an employee, but he did go to the Greenbrier and, and serve at least one meal there. Woodrow Wilson was so infatuated with his cooking that at the end of World War II, they did a big dinner at the White House, invited like 2,000 veterans of the war, um, and he asked Hector Boyardi to come and cater that event as well. So Woodrow Wilson was a big fan of his cooking. In 1924, Hector moved his family to Cleveland, Ohio, and opened his first restaurant. This is the first one he ever owned himself. He named it Il Gardino Italia. D'italia, sorry, uh, which translates to Italian Garden, very quickly became hugely popular in Cleveland, and Hector noticed uh, that a lot of his customers were asking for his recipes. You know, they wanted to be able to make this stuff at home, and unlike a lot of chefs, he was very open. He would he would help customers. You tell them, you know, you need to get get these tomatoes and and get good olive oil, and you know, don't don't buy the cheap stuff. And he would tell them, you know, how to make his sauces, and he said. A lot of people kept complaining that you know I'm doing everything you say with the sauce, it just doesn't taste right. So he came up with the idea of making the sauce and bottling it, and he would sell it to his customers. They could come into the store and and take a jar of the spaghetti sauce home, or the or the marinara sauce, whatever they were looking for. And he said that a lot of people there were still saying you know it just doesn't taste right. So he's telling me you got to use semolina pasta. Any other kind of pasta is not going to taste right. It's not what you need to use. And so eventually he started making little, like little take-home meal kits. Uh, he had a packet of dried pasta, a bottle of his sauce. Uh, he would include Parmesan cheese, and then they could go home and add whatever meat they wanted to it. And it was sort of like a uh, pre-made meal kit that they could just come in, grab a bag, and take home and cook. In 1927, Hector Boyardi was approached by a couple of his regular customers, Maurice and Ava Weiner. Now, the Weiners owned a local grocery store, and they were wanting Hector to let them sell his meal kits in their grocery store. Uh, Hector agreed. Uh, they Again, they were extremely popular. They sold like crazy. And through Maurice and Ava's relationship with food distributors, Hector Boyardi was able to start marketing his meal kits across several states. And once again, everything was just hugely popular. You know, the depression had kicked in. Uh, these were very inexpensive meals to get. They were very filling. You could feed your whole family on us. It was, you know, half the price of a lot of other stuff. And these meal kits, they just sold like crazy. So much so, in fact, that in 1938, Hector Boyardi moved his operation to Milton, Pennsylvania, which Milton is about an hour and 15 minutes from where I lived just outside of Wilkesbury. I do not recall ever hearing that Chef Boyardee was located just down the road. Um, I've actually been through Milton. I didn't even see anything. Now, it may have been at night, and I wasn't there because of the Chef Boyardee food plant, but it seems like something like that would be statues, signs, you know, Milton, Pennsylvania, home of Chef Boyardee. I didn't see any of that. Now, I wasn't looking for it. Maybe I drove past something, but it seems like that would have be been a little bit bigger deal than what it was. But they chose to move to Milton, Pennsylvania to be closer to the tomato growers. They were using something like 20,000 tons of tomatoes every month at this point. Uh, They were also the largest importer of Parmesan cheese in the world. And they also, when they constructed the plant, they made it so that in the basement they could grow their own mushrooms. So that made it much easier for them to produce their pasta sauces, and everything went great until World War II started. Now, pasta was not a rationed food item, so that really didn't affect the business per se, but a lot of the other ingredients that they were using to produce their sauces and and their canned goods, a lot of that stuff was rationed. So their production started to slip a little bit, uh, obviously, with everything going on, their sales went down a little bit. And Hector Boyardi was faced with the possibility that he was going to have to lay off some of his workers. His solution to get around that, because he absolutely did not want to lay off any of his employees, he he really took care of the employees of that company. He sort of felt personally responsible for them. But he managed to get a contract with the government to supply food and rations to the soldiers in World War II. Uh, Just like over here in the States, you know, the food was a big hit. You know, I'm sure hot ravioli and in camp in, in a frontline situation was probably very comforting, a little taste of home. Again, all his food was extremely popular with the soldiers over there. So much so that after the war was over, Hector Boyardi received the Gold Star Order of Excellence, which is one of the highest awards that a civilian can receive from the government. It was also around this time that he changed the name of the company. His name is spelled B-O-I-A-R-D-I, Boyardi. Now, apparently that was a very uncommon name even back in the day. He said that even a lot of the salesmen for his company had trouble pronouncing the name. So this was the time that he changed the spelling on all the packaging and the name of the company to what we're used to seeing as Boy R D. You know, he spelled it phonetically so that people would know how to say it, and that's where the name comes from. It's just a phonetic spelling of his last name that English-speaking Americans could could read and not have to struggle to figure out what what in the world am I looking at here, but. Following the war, uh, Hector was getting close to 50 years old. And, you know, Running the company was starting to tire him. There was some infighting among his family members about the direction of the company and how things needed to be run. And Hector Boyardee decided that he was going to sell the company. Now, he did... Eventually sell the company to American Home Foods. Uh, They purchased Chef Boyardee for $6 million, which I think in today's money would have been about $40 million. Uh, His one and only stipulation for the sale of his company, I mentioned a, a moment ago that he felt very personally responsible for the people that worked for him. His one stipulation in order to sell the company to American Home Foods was that they were not allowed to fire or lay off any of his workers they had to keep employing all the people that worked for him. Now, although he no longer owned the company, American Home Foods did use him in their marketing campaigns. They did a ton of print ads. You know, his face is still on the packaging that you get when you purchase his pizzas or or his canned products in the grocery store, and he did a lot of uh, television ads. Now, I'm old enough that I can remember seeing him in television commercials when I was a little kid, uh, but he did uh, print and television ads for the company up until 1979. After the marketing campaigns ended and he stopped being a paid spokesman for the company, Hector Boy already moved back to Ohio, and he still Worked on recipe development and, and new products. You know, he was still sort of involved with the company, but he was more, more or less retired by this point. Chef Boyardee passed away on June 21st, 1985 in Parma, Ohio. Now, canned food gets kind of a bad rap in this country. And there is a lot of it that's just not very good and it's cheap crap. But you know, there's a lot that's really good. And like I say, I've got cans of Chef Boyardee ravioli in my pantry right now and they're not just sitting there waiting on their expiration date to pass they they get eaten i love them my wife eats them my son eats them my daughter not so much but she just doesn't eat a lot of stuff like that but but the shepoyardi the canned stuff is really good it's really tasty it's quick to heat up you can eat a bowl of that and you actually feel like you've had something to eat you're not starving to death 30 minutes later it's enjoyable food and the shepoyardi pizza kits that come in a box you know we ate those all the time growing up uh we had some of that just and i didn't fix it my mother fixed it for dinner but i mean i had one of those like a week ago it's good pizza you know the box that comes in, you get a, a mix of the pizza crust and a can of sauce and and some parmesan cheese and then you can throw whatever other toppings you want on it and it crust comes out real thin and you know when i was a kid there wasn't a pizza place Every 10 feet, you know, it, we had a pizza hut. That was it. Now, if you grew up in New York and there was a pizza shop on every corner, I can understand you may be thinking that that's something that you don't need to fool with, but do yourself a favor, get a box and try it. It's it's surprisingly good. It's fun making the crust and stretching the dough out and building the pizza. It's worth your time. Trust me, it's a it's an enjoyable meal to prepare and you will enjoy the food when you're done. And like I say, if, if you think you're too good for a bowl of Chef Boyardee ravioli, you're cutting a lot of joy out of your life for no good reason. And you need to rethink some things. But Hector Boyardee, I salute you. Your legacy lives on beyond your death. All right, guys, that is about all I've got for you today. As always, I thank you for sitting with me this long. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, If you did, please leave me a comment. You can do so at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com, or you can go to the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. And if you take a moment to drop a like and a rate for the show, I would certainly appreciate that. All right, guys, I hope everybody had a good Valentine's Day, and I hope none of my listeners fell for the trap of, oh, we don't have to do anything because that is exactly what that is. It's a trap. Have a good night, and we will talk again very soon. Thank you very much.